Now, usually when we talk about the being of God as, as triune, we use certain language to refer to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The language that we use is persons, right? The second person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity. We, th- we talk about Jesus and say that the word took on flesh and we refer to him as the second person of the Trinity. Um, when Christians talk about the Holy Spirit, they may use that, that language, third person of the Trinity. This type of language is common and it's, it's okay to use, but Christians have used this language for a long time to communicate this distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one true God eternally exists in three divine yet undivided persons. Now, if you look at chapter 2 of the 1689 Confession, I don't know if you have that, that in front of you, but in chapter 2 of the 1689, in paragraph 3, it's a chapter I want to sort of look at and I'll draw from a little bit as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if you have that in front of you, would you mind, anyone who has it, someone mind reading that for us? Matt, thank you. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor perceived. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on Him. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> now, when you, you'll see those verses um, at the end of that paragraph in your, in your note sheet there. Again, I've mentioned this before, that those verses, uh, they, they aren't meant to be proof texts, but they're meant to be read with other scriptures to bring us to the conclusion of what's stated in these paragraphs. And then some are, I think, helpful proof texts, but that's why they're there. Now, if you read this paragraph in your confession, you'll notice that it has a little mark by the word persons. The mark is to note that the word persons really means subsistences. Subsistences. Subsistences is not a word that we use every day. It's just not not common language. William Ames was a 16th century Puritan in Europe, and he defined subsistences as the manner of being of God as one essence so far as it has personal properties. What does that mean? When the confession uses this language, subsistence, it's trying to separate God from anything that he created. In Renahan's book, he basically says that person, that language person, the second person of the Trinity, third person of the Trinity, has more of a maybe human concept. It makes us think about people. We can't help but connect the word persons to human ideas and limited and finite beings, which God is not. So this language, subsistence, we'll talk about it more, 
is, has been used uh, in the past to say that, say again what God is not. So by saying subsistences or subsistence as opposed to persons, it's trying to strip anything from God that is, that is human, that is creaturely. Now, I don't think, uh, if, if, if we don't think about the word person, the third person of the Trinity, in the right category when we're thinking about or talking about God, we actually, I think, probably naturally connected to generation, separation, or relation of human beings. You're a person, you know, so Sabrina's a person, Brian's a person, they're both people. Um, they're both human beings, but they're not the same human being. They're both people, but they're not one human being. <clears throat> Again, you're both humans, but you're two different human beings. That's not true with God. The older translations say, uh, and they, they read in this way, in this divine and infinite being, there are three, again, subsistences, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence is undivided. So this way of explaining the Trinity affirms the distinction of persons while protecting the unity of the divine essence. They want to maintain that God is one. How do we protect the oneness of God and also communicate that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So this, this language that was used, they were trying to grapple with and grope with these ideas that we see in Scripture. And then there was also other teachings and heresies around this doctrine that turned God into something that God was not. And so the, the church that came before us wanted to come up and try and think of a way to formulate the Trinity to protect God from the heresies and also to teach the people faithfully about the nature of God. Now, the Belgian Confession uses this language, too. The Belgian Confession was written by a Belgian student, a one-time student of John Calvin. He was also a, a pastor. In Article 8 of the Trinity, listen to what it says. Now, right before this section in the Belgian Confession, it says that the three persons are really and truly eternally distinct according to their properties, since scriptures calls them Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let me have someone read that um, on your notes there in the Belgian Confession. Do you have that section? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has his own subsistence distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. Okay. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each has his own subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that the three persons are only one God, right? So we, we worship, we are uh, monotheistic. We worship one God, not three gods, right? So how do we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet recognize that this is one God? Now, this language of subsistences or substance has been used by Christians that came before us to guard both the distinction of the persons and the oneness of God. Nehemiah Cox was one of the men who helped to theologically frame the 1689 Confession. 
And this is how he explained the language of subsistence when it comes to God's divine nature. He says, in our conception of personality and the divine nature, we must separate from it whatsoever imperfections is seen in a created person. Every created person has a limited essence, distinct and distant from one another, but all the, un all the uncreated persons and the deity have the same essence, undivided essence, and are the one eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God. So these men and women, even at the time of the Reformation and before that, were trying to give thought to, again, how to communicate the nature of God and how to safeguard uh, what the scriptures say that God is from different heresies or even false thinking that would corrupt it. Our God is, again, triune. He's not triple, and God's divine essence doesn't exist apart from the three persons. God's divine essence isn't the total of the three persons either, as if God's divine essence is broken up and divided between the three persons. So if we think about it like a Lego block, if we take one big Lego piece, another Lego piece, and a third Lego piece, and then we'll say, okay, this is God's divine essence. But if we break it out to three different pieces, we cannot say that that's, that's God, because God would therefore be divided, right? God eternally exists as one being. God's divine essence isn't, again, the total of the three persons, um, but God's divine essence is the three persons. There are a few places in scripture where we can go to to get data that we need to try to sort of wrestle with this idea of the oneness of God and the divine trinity. Verses that we can look at to show us that God is of one substance, power, and eternity, and yet he's undivided. God's one divine essence eternally exists, again, in three persons. All right, let's go to um, take a look at Exodus 3.14. You have that on your note sheet there. If someone can read that for us nice and loud. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Okay. And then John 14.11 there. Let me have someone read that for us. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Okay, Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, if you can, in trying to wrestle through, through this, right, we recognize that the Word became flesh, Christ walked the earth, and his, fulfilled his ministry, and yet he can say here, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. These are one of the places that Christians would go to, and even those who, were, who the church recognizes as heretics, they would go to and look at these texts and say, well, what does this mean? Can Jesus be God? Is he lesser than God? Is he the same as God? Are there three gods? 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom 
we exist. Again, we're grappling with this idea that God is one, yet eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, moving on in the note sheet there, the next section is distinct and undivided. Distinct yet undivided. Now, we're thinking about God here. So we have to wrestle with the fact that I I have to wrestle with the fact that as I read this and study it, I'm like, this is there is some 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 tension there as as I try and make sense not only to, to read it and understand it, I know what the scriptures say, but to even teach it and say, okay, I have to try and teach on the Trinity with my finite, limited mind that's often tired, <laughs> and then communicate it on a Sunday morning in a Sunday school class with you, who I'm sure I'm tired, <laughs> are tired as well as I am, right? But let's try and wrestle with this a little bit. And this is why really I get these the aid of the Belgic Confession and the aid of the 689 and these aids of these the church that came before us because they did give a lot of thought to this to to make it precise and clear. And I want to I want us to think with the church about this doctrine of the Trinity. And hopefully it, it helps us in our worship and in our thinking about God. Now we have to believe and affirm what the scriptures teach about God that God is one. At the same time, scripture attributes certain parts of the order of salvation and certain aspects of God's work to certain persons in the Trinity. For example, the scripture talks about one who begets and one who is begotten. Who is the begotten? The son, the eternally begotten son. And the scripture talks about one who proceeds from them both, who who proceeds, the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. We know that God is undivided and indivisible, so we can say that the works of the three persons of the Trinity are never divided. But at the same time, we can say that the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Now, theologians in the past would use this phrase, relative properties, relative properties. And they would use this phrase to communicate those distinctions. Another way to talk about this is to use the term personal relations, relative properties, personal relations. Now, to help us think about the term personal relations, I want to look at a few verses. We'll look at the three persons of the Godhead and look at some scriptures that help us define this phrase personal relations. Now, in your note sheet, you'll see there the Father. So let's, let's think about the Father. The Father in the scriptures has this name by virtue of his paternity with relation to the Son. He is the one who begets. Let me have someone read John 1, 14 and 18. It's in your note sheet there. Oh, go for it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the Holy Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay. <clears throat> so God is one and undivided. Yet in John 1, 14 and 18 here, we see language of the Son 
from the Father, right? No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Affirming, okay, well, this personal relations language, Father. Psalm 2-7. Let me have someone read that for us. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay. You are my son. So we see that son language. Again, we're thinking about personal relations within the Godhead. How do we communicate Father, Son, and Spirit while maintaining the oneness of the undivided God? But we see these distinctions, these titles, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When the Bible talks about the Father as Father to the Son, it's different from his general relation to creatures. It's also different from how the Father is Father to those who are adopted, Christians, right? We have a different relation to the Father than the eternally begotten Son. Malachi 2.10, let me have someone read that for us. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Okay, so recognizing there, there is, in some sense, an idea of God as Father, generally speaking. Now, we're not talking about unbelievers here. This is language used in the Old Covenant to, um, in reference to the, the covenant people of God. And then Acts 17, 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. And, ev- and even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. So our recognition here of one God who created all things and from whom all things exist or come. Let me have someone read 1 John 3, 1 to 2 for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall, we shall see him as he is. Okay. So here, recognizing that we're called beloved children, we are the children of God, the, the believer. But we can't say that we are a child of God in the same way that Christ is. Why? Just, let me hear your thoughts on that. Why is, why, is, why is the Christian's relation to the Father, how is it different from the Son's relation to the Father, Jesus' relation to the Father? It's not a trick question. <laughs> oh, like you said, Jesus was God, is the same, but we are not. Yeah, right. right. So Jesus is God. He's a divine essence. He's distinct, right? He's uncreated. Right. So when you think about the conversation I had last week with the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, saying that Jesus is he's um, only divine in a sense that he's the first created being from the father. So in that sense, he's divine. Right. But we would deny that and say, no, Jesus is uncreated. And we can look in in scripture to 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 show that this language used of Christ is used of, of Yahweh even in, in the Old Testament. 
right? So clearly we're not, we don't have the same relation to the father as, as the son here. Um, these verses show us that what the church has called in theological terms generation, or it shows us what the church has called in theological terms generation. There is one who eternally begets or regenerates. No other relationship of paternity is equal or comparable to the eternal generation of the son by the father. No other person has the relationship to the father like his son, Jesus Christ. He is eternally begotten. Let's look at the son. The son in the scriptures has this name with relation to the father who begets him eternally. John Owen said, the whole essence of the father is communicated to the son as to a personal existence in the same essence without multiplication or division. Let's look at um, some verses that give this name, this title, son, to Jesus. Um, John 1, 1, 14 and 18. Let me have someone read that for us. Again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay, again, the second person of the Trinity has made known God, the Father. John 5, 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Great verses in conversations with those who might doubt the, the deity of Christ. The father has life. They would say, well, Jehovah's Witness, say, not to, to pick on them, but just the conversation is still in my mind. A Jehovah's Witness would, would say that, well, father, the father is the almighty. Um, and he's distinct in that way from the spirit who is the, the personal power of God and the son who is the divine created being of God. But the father, he's the one who's almighty. He's distinct and separate. But John five twenty six says the father has life in himself, which they would agree with. Um, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. So this is um, creation life. He is, speaks into existence. He, he creates. He, he is life in himself. Created beings do not have life in themselves, but are created and are given life. John 10.30. Let me have someone read that for us. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Another place to go to when you think about the, the context here. Jesus is talking about his own deity as, as God and the, the, uh, the Pharisees pick up stones to stone him. They weren't stoning him because they misunderstood what he was saying. They were threatening to stone him because he was calling himself God, which would have been blasphemy. John fourteen eleven, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, affirming... I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Uh, this is one God, right? Divine in essence and deity. 
Now, this way of talking about the Son in relation to the Father is unique. Jesus is God the Son. This is because of his eternal generation from the Father. Uh, William Ames, a Puritan in Europe, he lived in the uh, late 15, early 1600s. He wrote about subsistence and the trinity of God's divine essence. And he wrote some things that I think are helpful for us to, to think through. These are in your notes as well. Let me have someone just read those, those four, those, those three points. Starting with this subsistence. This subsistence, or manner of being of God, is his one essence so far as it has personal properties. The relative property of the Son is to be begotten, that is, so to proceed from the Father as to be a participant of the same essence and perfectly carried on the Father's nature. Hence is second in order. Hebrews 1.3, the brightness of his glory and the character of his person. Okay, sorry, one second. So, subsistence. When we think about that word, the manner of being of God. The manner of being of God. I know that language is foreign. It's foreign to me. But that's a, that, that was a helpful way for me to think about. Subsistence, the manner of being of God. And his one essence um, with personal properties. Okay, Chris, Crystal, pick up it. that third point. The property of the Holy Spirit is to be breathed, to be sent forth, and to proceed from the Father and the Son. John 15, 26. He who I will send forth from you from the Father, that spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Romans 8, 9. The spirit of Christ. Galatians 4, 6. The spirit of the Son. Okay, thank you. So you, you look at what, what's um, happening here. W- William Ames is using this language, property, but you can substitute that if you say, the, in that third point, the person of the Holy Spirit is to be breathed, to be sent forth, and to proceed from the Father and the Son. Or going up from that, the relative property of the Son is to be begotten. The, 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 the person of the Son is, is begotten. That is, to proceed from the Father. So again, the language of person is, is not wrong or sinful or anything. But just sort of doing a somewhat of historical survey to see what, what language was used in the past and why it was used concerning the Trinity as they tried to make distinctions between God and anything in, in creation. Now, let's think about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We have the eternal generation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit who proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Again, we're trying to get our minds around God's eternal divine existence. And of course, we can't. But as the church, as a church, we can think through these categories and think through these categories with Christians in our day today and in the past as, as we look at scriptures to formulate our doctrine of the Trinity. This doctrine that's been called the matrix of all theology. Even Augustine, when he thought about how to distinguish the generation of the Son from the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son, asked himself, this is what he says to himself, is there been a difference between generation and proceeding, the Son being generated from the Father eternally and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son? He says, there is, but I know not. He says, is, is there a difference? There is, but I don't know. I know not. 
neither am I able nor sufficient to distinguish them because that as generation, so proceeding is altogether unspeakable. He says, trying to think about how the son eternally generates from the father and how the spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son. There's a difference there. I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but I can't because these things are unspeakable. They're, they're divine. And I agree. They are unspeakable. It's, it's, it's hard to try and think through these things and communicate them. But I'm in good company. If Augustine was there too, I feel I'm good. Now, what, what he just said here, Augustine, in other words, he's saying the eternal generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit from the Father and the Son, um, we, we don't have language to communicate these, these things. We don't have language to communicate such divine things. We can only wrestle with the text, try and formulate them theologically and communicate them as best as possible, but we just don't have language for it. The Holy Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. The Spirit receives the divine essence, complete and undivided, from the Father and the Son. So the Holy Spirit has the title in the scriptures as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Son. Let me have someone read John 15, 26 there in the, in the note sheet. Okay, thank you. And then Galatians 4, 6. Someone read that for us. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Okay. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. More, more language there that we sort of have to wrestle with. <clears throat> and the scriptures, the spirit is of the father, and the Son by procession for a mission. You guys remember the uh, Holy Spirit Sunday school class when we talked about why the Spirit was sent? Why was the Spirit sent? What was the mission of the Spirit? Paraclete. Yep, paraclete, advocate. So uh, another helper, right? So he, he applies the work of Christ to the believer and sparks the New Testament church by redeeming a people in Christ. So he had a specific mission as the third person of the Trinity. And we think about this in salvation. We talked about um, in past class, the, um, the covenant of, of redemption, um, this, this pre-temporal covenant where the father elects a people in himself and full covenant agreement with the son, the son dies for that elect, right? And the spirit applies the work of Christ to the elect, right? So they are, they are saved. So even when we think about salvation, we could think about it in Trinitarian terms. So the spirit had a specific mission and as he proceeds from the father and the son. We see this in Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit. Something is happening in salvation and sanctification that involves the Spirit's work and mission. John uh, 14, 16. Let me have someone read that for us. John 14, 16. Okay. 
know, as Matt said a second ago, that uh, the, the paraclete, the, the helper there. <clears throat> now, last week I introduced uh, Michael Servetus, the 15th century Spanish theologian who taught that the Father alone is God. He also believed the Spirit was just the impersonal power of God. But the Bible doesn't lead us to believe that the Spirit is just an impersonal power. Right? The Spirit's personality, his being of distinct person, is seen in a few places. Not just an impersonal power, but a person. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen again, uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16, which we, we just read. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you. The Bible also attributes personal actions to the Holy Spirit. These actions aren't divided from the Father and the Son, but Scripture does talk about specific acts and that distinguishes them and highlights them in the Holy Spirit. John 30, uh, Job 33, 4. Let me have someone read that for us. Okay, so these scriptures we're, we're about to read again, highlighting this certain things which are attributed to the Spirit in creation and salvation. And we've already affirmed that the works of the Trinity are not divided because God is undivided. Yet, we can recognize specific areas that highlight the Spirit's work. Acts 13.2, let me have someone read that for us. Okay. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And then Romans eight twenty seven, And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit prays, intercedes for the saints. Not merely an impersonal power, but a person. And then there are other verses there for you to take a look at later or just note to, to read where we see more of these uh, specific actions and things attributed to the Holy Spirit. The Bible also shows us that the Spirit of God is equal with the Father and the Son. The Bible shows us the deity of the Spirit. So contrary to the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses, Scriptures do include the spirit as an object of our worship. He is to be worshiped as divine and as God. Right. Is that something you think about a lot? That the Holy Spirit ought to be worshiped? Is he in that category of worship for you? <clears throat> right. If, if we're honest with ourselves, probably not as often as we think about the father or even the son. Jesus should be worshipped. We, we, we have hymns and songs that we sing and prayers. But how often do we think about the spirit who is God being worshipped, prayed to, adored, right? The, the, the spirit is one with the Father and the Son. Look at Acts 5, 3 to 4. Let me have someone read that for us. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. Part of 
While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Mm. Another great passage to go to on the deity of the Spirit. They lied to the Spirit. Peter says, you haven't lied to man, but to God. Right? Recognizing the Spirit as God. And then 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. And then let me have someone read Psalm 143.10 for us. Okay, so here there's there's goodness attributed to the spirit. Again, not an impersonal power, but here specifically, let your good spirit. The spirit is 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 good. The spirit is perfect, uh, righteous, holy, just. Right. Not lesser than the Father, not lesser than the Son, but eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. <clears throat> And then there are also some other scripture references there for you to take a look at later that affirm the deity of the Spirit. Now, all these verses that we've read show us that the Holy Spirit is God and he's divine in essence. God's divine essence or the manner of his being subsists in relative properties and personal relations that are revealed in the name Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Sam Renahan in his book reminds us that the language of subsistence or relative properties can be difficult to understand, but they were the best tools that the church thought of within the tradition that they found to express the truth of the scriptures about God's Trinity. As they thought, search, groped with language that they thought best communicated this to distinguish God from anything in creation, the language of Subsistence, substance is what they used. Now, last week we read the Athanasian Creed, uh, an ancient document from the Church on the Trinity. The Belgian Confession is another uh, document from the Church that in some areas deals with the Trinity. It was written by Gudo de Bra, I think that's how you pronounce it. He was a pastor and one time student of John Calvin. Now, he wrote this confession. Um, to convince a Spanish king not to persecute Christians because their theology was was orthodox. And so it was sort of a defense of the Protestant and Christian faith. Now, this document uses the language of subsistence and gives us, I think, helpful language to communicate the personal relations within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to read this together. And again, hopefully it'll just give us Um, a peek into how the church has historically thought about the Trinity and communicated the Trinity. In Article 8, and we'll just, we'll read it together. So I'll just uh, have someone start and I'll stop you and then we'll have someone pick up. Okay, so who wants to start uh, in keeping with this truth? Crystal, go for it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
the Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might, proceeding from the Father and the Son. All right, thank you. <clears throat> Who wants to pick up? Kyle? Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has a distinct subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. Okay. Subsistence. What does that mean? What's, what's another way to say that? God's manner of being. Remember? Subsistence. God's manner of being. Personal properties or personal relations. What is this relating to? Think about the P's. The person. Second person of the Trinity. Third person of the Trinity. Right? So subsistence, God's manner of beings. And when we think about personal properties, we can think about persons. Okay? Kyle, continue. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and that the Son is not the Father, and that, likewise, the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinct, are neither divided nor fused nor mixed together. Okay. Let me have someone pick up. So again, I wanted to, to read that to maybe give us, help a little bit to give us some language and, and categories, even as, as I read through it myself on this past week was, was reading through it and thinking through it. Um, I thought it was, it was helpful. Keeping in mind, like our brother Augustine, <laughs> these things are unspeakable. They're hard to get our, our, our arms around. Yet, we can think with the church today and the church in the past about how this doctrine of the Trinity was communicated. Um, because there can be, I mentioned this last week, as we think about the Trinity, even as I, I talk about the Trinity, um, I'm, I'm communicating to you and at the same time thinking, okay, is that the best way to say that while having my mind to the footstones of heresy that I don't want to step on? <laughs> Right. So it's, it can be a, a difficult thing to, to, to grope with. But the safest way is to go to go to the scriptures, to wrestle with them. And then also to think with the brothers and sisters that came before us. How did they think about the Trinity? How was it communicated? What were they trying to safeguard from? What were they trying to affirm? OK, so let's we'll close out there. Um, any comments? Questions before I pray for us?